0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 81. I suppose you want to know where I've been lately. This now represents the longest gap in between publishing episodes since the inception of the podcast. Almost a month now, so sorry about that. It was not an intentional lapse of time, I can assure you. Well, it's really been a combination of things that unfortunately took precedence for me. But thankfully, nothing tragic, all good, or ended well at least. And indeed, only the mundane First and foremost, I did get busier with some work-related projects. And I mean real work. I mean work for a living stuff, not the real fun work stuff. You know, that is the fun work stuff like making one of these podcasts. Semi-retired I am. It means I still have some giddy-up in my hitch. I'm still active in the business world. Oh, and there was that... Minor thing that I mentioned in a previous episode: the idea that all my computer files crashed and my personal laptop was rendered almost useless. Well, add to that a new iPhone and, as part of the purchase, a botched data transfer at an AT&T store with lots of lost data in that scenario too, and some of that iPhone data related to the podcast series. Well, all of that took a minute or two of my time to address. Thankfully, a lot of the data is restored on both the phone and the laptop, but not all of it. And it was after a lot of work to do so, really, to be honest with you. Add to that, I ended up with COVID during this time frame, and that put me down for a while too, but certainly not out. You know, the usual period of isolation, quarantine, and and then limited energy to apply to tasks at hand. Tack onto that a little bit of travel before and after COVID, and that all made for a challenging period. And travel, frankly, also makes things trickier for me to produce an episode when I don't have all my equipment and research materials right there at the tip of my fingers. And also just at the moment when I'm in the mood to actually do the research and write and then record an episode. Right now, I'm currently in South Florida, and that does give me the opportunity to occasionally stare at the ocean. Now, at this time of the year, that's a nice experience. It's been beautiful here over this past week, and the skies were deep blue, and the water was even more colorful than that, with the ocean taking on Caribbean tones, as it so beautifully does in this part of the world at this time of the year. But before we leave the topic, one more thing about being in South Florida. It's a great place to be writing some of the stories about Oswald, which are going to start very soon, by the way, almost immediately once we finish up with the autopsy. You know, we're going to start writing soon about who he was, what he was, because so many roads lead to the story of Cuba, and so much of the story of Cuba is intertwined right here in South Florida. I grew up here, and I've experienced firsthand certain aspects of the Cuban culture, and that is one of the reasons that the story itself is so attractive to me. It's rich with intrigue, and I hope it will capture your attention, too, as we make that pivot very soon. Well, you've heard that from me before, and that was a wander, so let's get back on track for this episode, or really, the mini-series of episodes that are at hand right now. Today, we are going to spend some time on one of the few remaining topics that we need to cover as we finish up the story of the autopsy, that is, the topic of the autopsy photographs. Today's episode is the first in a multi-episode look at the issues surrounding the photos. Just like the x-rays, just like that mysterious set of discussions we just experienced, there are also a lot of questions around the autopsy photos. How many were actually taken? What actually did these photos show? And perhaps, most importantly, why weren't they used more extensively as evidence in the autopsy and as part of the Warren Commission reviews? And one more important thing to remember, the photographer was another eyewitness. So what exactly did he hear and see and experience that night? Oh, and indeed, regarding the photos themselves... I will remind everyone that technically they were not used at all in the Warren Commission review. Aside from perhaps one or two photos shown to Arlen Specter and a few shown to Earl Warren, no one on the Warren Commission or on the Warren Commission staff was able to view those photographs as part of the investigation drawings were substituted. And if you can believe it, drawings were done by Ida Docs and used officially by the Warren Commission, someone who was not at the autopsy and someone who did not have access to the pictures. Amazing, right? Oh, and even though they weren't available at the time, there still exists the question of whether certain photographs that were taken that night might now be missing. And, in addition to the questions around the missing photos, there is a more fundamental question related to whether the photos that were eventually deposited for permanent repose at the National Archives in 1966 are indeed all real, or are at least some of them perhaps doctored. And that includes an even more fantastic idea that there was another photographer— a White House photographer named Robert Knitson, who allegedly took additional photos either that night or shortly thereafter the fact, and perhaps somehow such photos ended up as replacements or were interwoven into the official collection of photos taken that night by the official autopsy photographer, John Stringer. Oh, it gets even creepier when some of the claims extend to the idea that perhaps Knudsen or someone else took pictures of a completely different body, and it was photos of that unrelated body that were used as substitute photos or supplementary photos that made their way to the official collection of photos now maintained officially at the National Archives. Like I said, you can't make this stuff up. And how about a host of issues related to chain of custody of the black and white and color film? Actually, slide film, perhaps, in the case of the color film. What happened to the chain of custody to the film itself, along with the printed photos? Look, officials couldn't even agree on how many photos were taken that night. And just for good measure, Agatha Christie style, we have another story to tell, too. In a later episode, a rather fantastic story, actually, if you recall, we said we would tell the story of William Pitzer, the high-ranking naval officer who lost his life shortly after he retired and was allegedly in possession of more photo or video material on the autopsy. And the theory is that he was going to use it to do an expose to expose it. (laughs) No pun intended, since it was film. And the question posed about his curious death, which, by the way, happened not long after his retirement in the 60s. The question is whether he was indeed, quote-unquote, eliminated by evil forces and that the kill was itself initiated by a CIA operative. Could it have been part of the larger plot to eliminate witnesses who emerged post-assassination and were a real threat to the idea that the real truth was about to be spilled? I know, I know. This whole line of discussion seems like it's far out and far-fetched. But keep an open mind as we discuss the possibilities surrounding it. There is evidence of something potentially foul there. The question is whether... It's credible and connected to the assassination itself. Once again, it goes back to the question that we, as jurors, seem to be faced with at every turn throughout these proceedings, left to us as jurors to make the call. That night at Bethesda, as soon as the photographs were taken by the autopsy photographers, the exposed film was immediately required to be turned over to the Secret Service agents turned over before it was even handled by the photographers in their usual fashion. In other words, the photographers themselves immediately lost control of the chain of custody of their own film. It was relinquished to the Secret Service even before it could be totally accounted for by the photographers. Remember, in those days, things weren't electronic and digital. You didn't just pop a memory card out and shove it into your laptop and then view the pics and see that you had taken pics numbered 1 to 100 or or something like that with a great audit trail of the pics already there. In those days, everything was manual and very physical. Pictures were taken and recorded on a film emulsion. The film was then taken to and developed by a film lab and that resulted in something referred to as a negative. That is, a negative image of the subject of the photo. If you have ever looked at a negative, you know it's where things that are dark in real life appear light on the negative and vice versa until printed and then the shades are reversed upon printing so these negatives were then projected onto photographic paper exposing the special paper during this printing process and then going through their own development and fixing and drying process to produce a paper print it might sound that i'm no stranger to that process i was a photography buff early in life as a teenager having gotten the bug from my two older brothers. I used to shoot my own photos and develop and print my own film. And it was a process, all right. And it was a process that requires, well, handoffs and a chain of custody as you physically go through a number of different steps to create a photograph. You might chuckle at this, but on many occasions, I would clear my closet out on a weekend as a teenager and use it as a darkroom. I know, kind of nerdy. I would do it after shooting rolls and rolls of film with a Nikon FM 35mm camera or an old 2 and a quarter square camera that I had. First, we would go through the development of the negatives and then prints would be exposed in the makeshift darkroom that I constructed in the closet and then I developed, fixed and washed the prints themselves in the bathtub of my bathroom. Most of the time, this exercise was completed in the wee hours on a night especially chosen because it had no moon. A night chosen to avoid any ambient light. Oh yes, it was a process, all right, to get it from camera to print. And in the case of the Kennedy autopsy, it turned out to be a process that was truly devoid of a chain of physical custody that night. A chain of physical custody that could be well documented and deemed legitimate as the autopsy photographers lost possession and custody and control of the film just about as soon as the pictures were taken. Oh no, for sure. There was to be no use of these pictures in the investigation. Just exactly why the authorities decided this, decided to immediately seize the film, well, to this day, the reasons why, they still just remain a matter of conjecture. The popular reason quoted is that the Kennedy family was adamant and was, of course, legitimately concerned about the potential for sensationalized use of the autopsy photos. And there was one more complication that I have already mentioned in an earlier episode, but I'll repeat it here. Earl Warren and the Warren Commission had made a pledge that any evidence that was used and relied upon in the investigation would be available publicly as part of the Warren report and all of its exhibits. So there was a real dilemma here when it came to the idea of relying on these photographs, but then turning around and excluding them from the official Warren Commission evidence record. Had they decided to do that, it would have clearly been in contravention to the idea of transparency, an idea that was publicly pledged at the outset by Earl Warren and the Warren Commission. Nowadays, we know that the idea of the Warren Commission being transparent about the investigation is perhaps a bit humorous at this juncture. But still, at that moment in history, Earl Warren was adamant, and he was especially adamant, about keeping these pictures out of the public eye, out of the record, after he saw at least one of those shots, after the picture was developed and printed. I'm sure it was an image that was gruesome and probably seared into his head forever. And it likely galvanized his view of keeping the photos securely tucked away, in keeping with the desires of the Kennedy family, too, and his own sense of good taste about how to handle the details of this national tragedy. Even just the use of a few of those photographs would have limited literally hundreds of thousands of hours of speculation and conjecture and recreation that really, over the years, would have been totally unnecessary had these pictures been available. As I've said before, a picture, and particularly a picture in this case, was worth way more than a thousand words. Think of what 100 pictures would have yielded. Certainly a lot less speculation about basic facts related to the forensic review of the president's body. The man who took the photographs that night at Bethesda supposedly knew his business. He headed up the only naval medical photography program in the country, and it was located right there at Bethesda. But sadly, when you listen to his testimony some 33 or so years later, it is the sworn testimony of a man who either became very scared even more scared of things, perhaps, in later years, or was suffering from some legitimate memory fade or memory loss. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt, but really, I can't. After listening to almost four hours of his testimony that is on audio tape, listening to it multiple times, I think he was scared, and he was not always forthcoming, even though he was under oath. And after 33 years, it probably was pretty easy for him to just sit there and say, I don't know. I don't remember. Or I don't recall. Or I don't recall it that way. But thanks to David Lifton and documented records of the House Select Committee on Assassinations and the fact that Lifton tape-recorded conversations with Stringer, and in some cases video-recorded other witnesses not too many years after, The idea of later changes in their story and their testimony gets quite interesting. It does for sure with Stringer. In his ARRB testimony, he was faced with the tactics that every good prosecuting attorney, so to speak, undertakes undertakes with a hostile witness, a witness who has now changed his story. In this case, the ARRB attorneys asked the questions of Stringer. They let him essentially make a statement under oath on the stand, knowing from their pre-conversations or other evidence that he was saying things now that were contrary to his earlier statements. Statements made on tape to Lifton many years earlier, and in some cases to the House Select Committee investigators in 1978. And then they proceeded to play the earlier rendition of a David Lifton tape recording, so that Stringer could hear his own voice, say, in his own words, statements that were exactly the opposite of what he was saying under oath on the stand to the ARRB attorneys. All this happening some 30 or so years later. Memory fade? Memory loss? In these cases, I just don't think so. But you all can be the judge of that. It makes for some fascinating listening. He does, under the pressure of lawyers questioning, eventually admit to important facts that further support foul play related to at least some of the photographs. The idea that some were clearly not taken by him and still others that he did take were missing from the inventory. And then he made statements at the time of the inventories to that effect. And more in detail on that as we get into upcoming episodes. Like all the other military participants that night, Stringer was required to sign a document which required his silence for 15 years, his oath of secrecy after the autopsy. So he, too, remained silent like the rest of the military men there that night. Mostly, that is. But Lifton was perhaps clearly an exception. Technically, under penalties of law, he was unable to officially tell any of his story until it was finally told for the first time to investigators of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. Even then, his testimony was hidden from the records. And what is more amazing is that John Stringer doesn't remember having any contact with the House Select Committee investigators. I think for you and I, we would have remembered such a life event, being the person who took the autopsy photos of the only president assassinated in the last half of the 20th century. And it was not until he testified again under oath at an inquiry conducted by the Assassination Records Review Board in 1996 that his answers to questions about what went on there that night at Bethesda were to come out more publicly. And more importantly, his answers to the questions about the official autopsy photos as well. John Stringer is not a star witness and he is certainly not as entertaining as a Gerald Custer. But Stringer has some things to say that are quite interesting, and you'll hear it in excerpts of that testimony over the next several episodes. Like the Ebersole and Custer duo in the saga around the X-rays, there were two players in attendance that night at Bethesda that were part of the photography team. That is why I sometimes say the photographers. Plural. John Stringer was the official photographer, but as head of the medical photography school, there was a student there with him that night, Floyd Reeby. You've heard his name before when we inventoried the players that were present there that night at the autopsy. And there is controversy over whether he did or did not take pictures of the body that night. Under oath, Reeby says he did. Limited pictures with a 35 millimeter camera. They were general pictures of the body taken to provide an overview and lead-in to the more detailed photographs of the body that were taken by John Stringer. Like the story of the X-rays, there is controversy and conflict between the story that John Stringer tells and the story that Floyd Reeby, the photography student, tells. Well, imagine that. Like I said, you can't write this stuff. Stick with this because the next few episodes do require a close listening ear. You know, when we listen to recorded testimony, my friend Chris always asks this of me. What are we listening for? So, I am going to provide a few cliff notes just because Stringer is a little less interesting to listen to, and if you are exercising or shoveling snow while the podcast is on, you might miss these important points contained in this episode. So... Number one, I think Stringer may have slipped up, so to speak. When he was describing what got entered on the Bethesda photo log, he mentioned that motion pictures were sometimes logged there. Yet, he then denied that motion pictures were taken of autopsies when asked. Given some of the claims you will hear regarding the Pitzer episode, that comment and the conflict between his two statements becomes suspect. Two, He was confused on whether the color film used that night was Kodachrome or Ektachrome. That's significant, as the Secret Service receipt and the FBI inventory recorded by Sybert and O'Neill says Ektachrome. The difference is that Ektachrome is slide film, and Stringer says they did not take slides routinely. So, what happened to the slides? Or, was it just a mistake by the less informed FBI and Secret Service agents? And maybe it was Kodachrome would they have known the differences? In those days, the answer, I think, is yes, probably. For anyone who took pictures, even amateurs like me, well, we knew the difference. Number three, the log I just mentioned, or chit, which contained orders, was never located, at least the portion of the log that contained any logging of the Kennedy pictures that night. Not surprising, probably just like the story that Custer told about the log for the x-rays. The record of those pics was probably, and quickly, expunged, or maybe never made. It's not clear from the questions and answers that took place in the session. Number four, they established that the pictures, the four by five pics that were taken, were all taken using the film packs of two. That is, two pictures to a film pack. That helps to establish the exact number of pictures since the number of film packs was inventoried that night before processing, rather than the actual number of pictures that were produced from the film packs. So in other words, it's film packs times two equals the number of pictures we should see. Number five, Stringer clearly confirmed that Floyd Reeby, the photography student, had a 35 millimeter camera that night. The only other camera there besides the 4x5 that Stringer used. No one else had a camera there that night. But Stringer tells the story differently than Reby. Stringer basically said that Reby was taking general pictures of people inside the autopsy room, as opposed to pictures of the president's body. And a plain-clothed official confiscated the film. So whatever Reby did take pictures of, Well, both photographers confirmed that the confiscation of this film occurred and those pictures were likely exposed to light and essentially rendered useless. More later on the HSCA's attempt to recover them. Number six, he states that Bethesda had film processing capabilities for both black and white and color film. Yet the film, after it was confiscated by the Secret Service, was not processed at the Bethesda facilities. It was processed elsewhere total loss of chain of custody. Number seven, more mysterious than all of that, on at least two occasions, Stringer explicitly mentions the presence of CIA agents. To be fair, he says FBI or Secret Service or CIA, but he mentions explicitly CIA twice in that way. For a man that was, well, let me say careful, and very willing to say, I don't know, or I don't remember, a lot. It was an interesting and seemingly very explicit statement to include a reference to the presence of a CIA officer at the autopsy. Number eight, Stringer did confirm the use of a probe by the autopsy doctors, and he also pretty clearly said that it was only used in the back, and that it did not make its way all the way through the body. No through and through bullet path that, at least at that moment, could be confirmed to have traveled from back to front and through the president's neck. Obviously, the significance of that is big and corroborates statements made by others. Number nine, he confirmed that after the Y incision was made on the president's torso, that certain internal pictures were taken, including close-ups of the neck wound and also of the adrenals, While the adrenal shot had nothing to do with the assassination itself, it certainly has some confirmatory value of his condition at that moment, and thus it does have real historical value. But more germane to the assassination is what that internal photo of the neck showed. Was it confirming the statements of the doctors regarding a through and through wound from back to front, or was it not? This photo is an important one to learn more about as it's probably the only remaining existing evidence of the damage to the neck organs themselves. Well, I guess that's enough in the way of Cliff Notes. It's now time for Mr. John Stringer to tell his own story in his own voice. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of Episode 81 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.
1: If you will, sir, raise your right hand and be sworn. Do you some respectful of truth, Mr. help you, God. I do. Thank you. Would you state your name for the record, please? John Stringer. Mr. Stringer, have you ever had your deposition taken before? I have not. As I mentioned to you just before we started the deposition, that uh, I will be asking questions to you in the deposition all of the answers that you provide will be recorded by the court reporter. Mr. Stringer, uh, you are under oath and unlike in the telephone conversation that you and I had earlier, uh, federal law pertaining to perjury would apply here and so we ask that you give uh, your best and most honest recollection to the extent that you can. If you don't recall, then you should say that you don't recall, uh, but it is, it's is—it's very important that we uh, get the best recollection as we can from you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mr. Stringer, were you present at any time during the autopsy of President Kennedy? Yes, I was. What was your role generally at the autopsy? I took photographs of the body. Is there any reason today that you would be unable to answer the questions that I'm going to ask you honestly, fully, and accurately? No reasons. Were you ever previously under any kind of order or restraint from being able to talk about the autopsy? Yes, I was. Can you explain very briefly what the nature of the order was or the circumstances that put you under the order? Well, I think it was the morning after the autopsy we were gathered into the commanding officer's office of the Naval Medical School, who threw the fear of God into everyone, And he had a paper that we all had to sign that we would not uh, talk to anyone about what had happened on that particular night. Uh, Do you remember the name of the person who gave you the order? John Stober. Did he say why you were being put under an order not to discuss the autopsy? Not as far as I can recall. He just said that it was a very important thing, that we were not to to, uh, speak to anyone about it. Did he use the term "secret" or "top secret" in terms of the the substance of what had happened at the autopsy? I think he did. Uh, which which term did he use? I uh, I remembered it: "secret," whether it was a "top secret" or not. Uh, did Captain Stover say anything about orders coming from the White House? I think
2: he said it was orders from the Surgeon General. Mr. Stranger, have you ever had a security clearance? Yes, I have. Did you have a security
1: clearance at the time of the autopsy? Yes, I did. Did you ever have access to classified information? Yes. What was the highest level of security clearance that you had? I
2: think it was autopsy. I had someone send me some copies of the pictures, which I sent back.
1: Do you remember who it was who sent you a copy of the pictures? Uh, Livingstone. Is it Harry Livingstone? They were in black and white. Mr. Stringer, have you spoken to anyone about the fact that you would be having your deposition taken today? Only my wife. Would it be fair then to say that you didn't speak to anyone other than your wife, about the substance of the deposition or anything about the autopsy?
2: That's correct.
1: Have you ever received any instructions from anyone affiliated with the United States government about statements that you should or should not make regarding the autopsy, other than you order not to discuss the autopsy? No. I was at one time...
2: I, I was uh, told that I could uh, talk to a Dr. A Latimer when I was under that order After the autopsy, did you ever speak to any of
1: the physicians who were present at the autopsy regarding the autopsy? No. I don't think so. So I can't remember. You don't remember, then, for example, ever speaking to Dr. Humes about the autopsy? No, I don't think so. Do you remember speaking with anyone else who was present at the autopsy other than the doctors about the autopsy? Well, I had a, 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 a corpsman there. We never we never spoke about it. Is the corpsman named Mr. Reeby? Yes, correct. When was the last time you saw Mr. Reavy, approximately?
2: Well, when he graduated from the photo school there.
1: I haven't seen or heard from him since then. And that was uh, that was soon after
2: the autopsy, I believe. So that would be the early to mid-60s was the last time you saw Mr. Reavy? Yes. Is that correct?
1: Do you recall that you and I uh, had a telephone conversation a few weeks ago? Yes. Other than that conversation, I'd like to find out what other times you have spoken to officials of the U.S. government about the autopsy. Let me go back and ask, did you ever speak to anyone about the autopsy during the time that the Warren Commission was in existence? No. So you then never testified to the Warren Commission? No, that's correct. Would it be fair to say, then, that you had uh, significant amount of experience in autopsy photography as of 1963? Yes. Do you know of anyone in the Navy who had more experience with autopsy photography than you did as of
2: 1963? as far as I
1: can tell. Would the log identify the type of film that was used in the autopsy? Yes. Did the log identify the type of camera that was used in the autopsy?
2: No, because at that time we only used
1: the four x five the graphic view camera, so we knew what was I mean, what was being taken. If it were
2: if it were just movies and it was written in there that it was done, a motion picture.
1: Did you at some time take motion pictures of autopsies?
2: Mm-hmm. I don't remember. So then,
1: these then the photographs would be not only of the body of the deceased, but any sections that had been taken Correct. or any body parts. All of them would be identified by the number. Yes. After the photographs were taken in the, or exposed in the ordinary course, what would happen to those photographs from the autopsies? They would be uh, sent to our lab and they would be then taken out of the, out of the film holders and then and, and processed. If it were black and white, it would be done in the black and white lab. If
2: they were color, they would then go
1: to the color lab. You had labs at Bethesda that could handle both black and white Correct. in color. After the photographs had been developed in the lab, would the fact that they had been developed in the lab also be recorded in the log that you mentioned earlier? Yes. In other words, uh, uh, this uh, is a chip that we had on. the each of the jobs had on there. What was it taken in black and white? How many prints were made, if they were black and white or color? And then it would also say who did it. What happened to the photographs after they had been developed? They they were they kept at the photo lab or sent somewhere else to do that? They would put in a jacket
2: and filed in the photo lab office. And then when it's and was it standard practice to uh, show close-ups
1: of a wound of entrance, whether it's a knife wound or a bullet wound? Well, here again, it would depend upon what uh, the doctor told you to do. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, you are working for the doctor what he wants, except when he sends a patient uh, to the lab, and then on the chip. It just it tells you what he wants. But when you're in the operating room or in, in the morgue or something, you're basically under his control.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, uh, we were in the process of changing from uh, from 4 by 5 to 35mm. And we
1: were, uh, the commanding officer wouldn't let us to purchase
2: any more of a 4x5 film because we were in the midst of uh, buying 35 million cameras in a film. Would it be standard
1: practice in 1963 to have autopsy photographs all in color? Generally, they was done both color and black and white. When it was done in black and white, would you use a press pack or, or just the
2: back that would hold two? You no, know, just the back that would hold two. It was your personal preference, though, then to use the graphic view camera. Is
1: that fair for some other explanation? No, but I used it at uh, the autopsy. E. Yes, I used the uh, the camera that was on uh, the tripod. You, that's what you all, would always use.
2: Yes, the camera yeah. that was on
1: the tripod. Okay. Does does that mean that? Uh, well, could the calumet camera go onto the tripod? Yes. Okay. So, in some instances, there may be the Calumet, and you would use that in some instances, the graphics image right? did the photo lab have a, a Graflex camera in 1960? Yes, yes. you mean the time you looked down yes. 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 Approximately. But it yes, approximate that was never used
2: okay. it, it was used before that it was a it was an antique, okay.
1: Do you recall the kind of uh, color film that was used around 1963? Codechrome. Kodachrome or ectochrome? I think it was a I'm not sure. I think it was a codechrome. Did the lab have the capability of processing codechrome film in 1963? Yes. In autopsy photography, did you ever use color-negative
2: film in 1963? I don't think so. What I'd like to do is to take a short break now, and I'd like
1: to show you a document uh, which I'll identify uh, for you take some time to take a look at it. I'm going to ask you if, this, if the document helps refresh your recollection about any context that you may have had uh-huh. with the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And uh, take take your time to read it. Okay. Uh, though you don't need to read it word for word, you're welcome to do so uh-huh. if you wish. The document is marked exhibit number 19, and it appears on its face to be a memo to the file from Andy Purdy dated August 17, 1977, it is a 17-page memorandum, and I would like to draw Mr. Stringer's attention particularly to pages 9 through 17 of the document. Take a short break. Mr. Stringer, If you had an opportunity to look through Exhibit 19? Yes. Does the exhibit help refresh your recollections to whether you ever spoke with people on the House Select Committee staff? Uh, I don't remember speaking to them. Uh, in, do you recall ever having seen the document before that's now marked exhibit number 19? No, I've never seen it. After 1966, where, regarding what you previously testified, that uh, you had gone to the archives to make an inventory. Have you ever seen the autopsy photographs at the archives at any point after that? I have not.
2: Not that I can recall.
1: In in the document marked Exhibit nineteen it refers on page fourteen to a visit that a Mr. Stringer and Jim Kelly and Colleen Boland took to the National Archives. Does that help refresh your recollections whether you ever went to the archives? Mm-hmm. It does not. I don't remember. Uh, th- as you're sitting here today, does this seem to you to be very unlikely that you went to the archives or you just have no recollection one way or the other?
2: I don't think I want. I don't have any it. And at the I
1: 77, was, I was a living... In East. it does say that I was staying with my daughter. Who's, who's, who's
2: the name is wrong here? It, it's R-U-S-K.
1: This is Russ, brother. This is Ross. Uh, I certainly don't remember going to the archives with these people. I don't know how I would have gotten there. Do you believe that if you had gone to the archives in 1977 to look at autopsy photographs that you would probably remember that as you're sitting here today?
2: I would. I would. I think I would. In the autopsy of President Kennedy, was
1: there anyone else present taking photographs in addition to yourself? No. You had previously mentioned the name of Mr. Reeby. do you recall that? Yes. Uh, do you have any recollections whether Mr. Reeby took any photographs during the autopsy? Mr. Reeby had a camera. We thought it was uh, an occasion and that we might take some pictures of some of the people in the room. And one of the FBI, or CIA it was, saw the camera and he took the, the film out of the camera before there was any exposure. Uh, when he took the film out of the camera, did, did you see him take the film out of the camera, or did you hear about that? I heard about it from the reading. Okay. Was it your understanding that the film had been exposed to light? Correct. Now, if the film is exposed to light, would it be something like translucent or transparent, or would it be black if it was subsequently developed?
2: It would, uh, I mean, if it were developed, it wouldn't show anything. It wouldn't show anything,
1: but would the film be dark, or would it be clear? It should be clear, there's no exposure. Do you know what kind of uh, camera Mr. Reeby had at the autopsy?
2: It was a 120. I don't know it. I don't remember the name of it. Are you familiar with the name of Mr. Robert Knudson? Knudson. A doctor.
1: Oh, White House photographer. Not 10, 10. Do you ever recall... Meeting with anyone who was a White House photographer any time during the Kennedy or Johnson administrations?
2: Meeting? Meeting or
1: or knowing or conversing with, with any White House photographers. I know they had a photographer at the White House, but I don't remember. Is the name Knudsen too, familiar to you at all? Uh, I knew a, a Dr. Knudsen, but uh, if I if
2: I ever met him, I don't remember him.
1: Okay. In addition to Mr. Reby, was there anyone else at the autopsy who had a camera that you recall? None at all. If there had been someone else at the autopsy with a camera, do you believe, as you're sitting here today, that you would recall
2: yes. that? Yes. If you had a camera, you could take a picture there, anyway. If you had a camera, you could take a picture there, anyway.
1: Other than Mr. Reedy, was there anyone else
2: at the autopsy who was assisting you in taking photographs? No. Was the lighting that was uh, normally in the morgue at Bethesda sufficient for taking
1: autopsy photographs? No. What did you take with you to the autopsy? We had uh, uh, speed lights. Can you explain briefly what a speed light is? Well, it's like a flash, and you, you press
2: it along with the camera. It's uh, synchronized, and it exposes it.
1: By the way, with respect to exhibit number 19, do you have any understanding or idea of how that document might have come into existence or or why there would be references to a Mr. Stringer? No. Does it surprise you to see Exhibit
2: 19? Yes, it does.
1: Although there are things in there that are true. Without uh, your answer to this being necessarily exhaustive, are there other things that stood out in Exhibit Number Nineteen as being incorrect? Is anything that you now recall seem to be incorrect?
2: I don't know. I'd like to show you a
1: document that has been marked as Exhibit Number MD Eighty. Could you take a look at that document and tell me whether you've ever seen that previously? Evidently out, yes. I'll say for the record that on its face exhibit, MD-80 appears to be a letter dated September eleventh, nineteen 1977 from Mr. John T. Stringer, Jr. to Mr. Donald A. Purdy, Jr. Mr. Stringer, do you have any recollection of having written the letter? I guess I must have. That's that was in 1977. I don't a have a copy of it. As best you can tell, is that your signature at the yes, bottom of the page? I would say it is. Does the letter help refresh your recollection about any contacts, even through writing that you may have had with uh, the House Select Committee on Assassinations? Well, evidently uh, this was from them, but, uh, but I don't even... I mean, I mean, this brings back the memories, but I don't remember it. Does, does exhibit number 80 refresh your re- recollections to whether you may have met with anyone on the House Select Committee South? I don't remember meeting with anyone on the House Select <laughs> You mean
2: physically face-to-face?
1: Yes. Do you recall going to Washington at any time um, during 1977? I, I generally went up to see my kids. Yes. But I don't remember going down with anybody to see pictures. In Exhibit 19, there are a couple of references which I have recorded as being on pages 11 to 12 and 16 that state that you did not take color photographs, excuse me, you did not take black and white photographs at the autopsy. Are those statements correct or incorrect? Well, oh, note on pages 11 to 12, it's right at the end of the page. Well, I, I I don't know whether I did or not, but I think I did when I see all this. You think that you did took some, back and
2: When you say see all of
1: this, what are you referring to? Well, seeing uh, what was said back in those days. You're referring to Exhibit 19? Well, I, I am... A, referring to some of the other things that were said that they were black and white stick.
2: Okay. If we had uh, the, the chip from the
1: thing, it would say it. That Do you recall having filled out the chip with respect to the autopsy of President Kennedy? I think so.
2: Could you look at the top of page 16?
1: Yes. Uh, the first full sentence, which I'll read for the record, he said in the general autopsy he took only color photo." Excuse me. Let me try that again. He said in the general autopsy he only took color photographs. Do you see that at the top of the page? Yes. Is that a correct statement as to what you did during the autopsy? Uh, I, I, I actually don't remember, but uh, we generally took Black and white and color at the same time. Uh, and now, if we have a black and white negative, but then you can also
2: take black and white and negatives from the color.
1: When you say we took
2: them, who who do you mean by we? I. Excuse me. Could you uh, describe for me how the photography? took place
1: at the autopsy of President Kennedy. And maybe if we can just start out by, um, were you present in the morgue when the body arrived? Yes, I was in the morgue when the body arrived. Prior to the time the body arrived, had you taken any photographs? No. When did you first start taking photographs? After they had finished uh,
2: the x-rays, and put the x-rays on the U the box and, and interpreted them. Do you remember approximately how much time there was between
1: the time that the body was taken out of the casket and you began to take photographs? Well, it must have been more than an hour by the time they took the x-rays and they had to develop them and bring them back down. Do you recall what kind of casket the body arrived in?
2: It was a metal casket.
1: What color was it?
2: I think it was sort
1: of a brownish. Do you remember what kind of lid it had? One that opens. On hinges? Yes. What was President Kennedy's body wrapped in, if anything, when it arrived? It was wrapped in in two sheets. One around the head and one around the body. These were cloth sheets, plastic sheets? Yeah,
2: they were were, were just like off of a bed, hospital sheets. Once you started taking
1: photographs, did you uh, take all of the photographs
2: all approximately at the same time, or did you take photographs throughout the autopsy? It was uh, throughout the autopsy. You mentioned previously that the, the photographs were in two to a
1: pack. Is that, is that right? Yes. When okay, you a film holder. To a film holder. When you pulled out a film holder from the camera, what did you do with it? I
2: held it in my hand because it's, it's, it's silver when it's not exposed. And then when you expose it, and you put the black side in. And you take it out, turn it over, and put the other side in.
1: Okay. And when you had the film holder in your hand with exposed film... What did you then do with the film over? I gave it to the agent or to Levy, to someone, and they took it, and they put them in a box, because they did not want anybody else to have
2: them. When you say
1: they, you're referring to either Secret Service or CIA or whoever it was. Uh,
2: they said that's what we were to do.
1: Okay. Did, did anyone show you any identification so you would have known whether it was Secret Service or any other agency? They were wearing civilian clothes. Wearing civilian clothes, and uh, I believe Dr. Humes and Dr. Silver said to do what they wanted. Okay. Uh, do you recall at any point taking just one of the folk, one of the sheets, or exposing one of the sheets in a holder and not exposing the other sheet? Never. That wouldn't have been your practice, just to do one, shot no. and then hand it to them. And so, roughly, you would estimate that there would be. Two sheets that had been exposed for each holder. For each holder. Is that right? Did you alternate between black and white sheets, or did you take all color and then black and white? Do you have any recollection? No, you'd have to alternate. Did you take any exposures? that would show the full length of the body of President Kennedy? Yes. So it would be from head to toe, yes. from the side? From the, from sure. the down. Okay. Uh, did you take any that would show the full length of the body from the left side or the right side? I don't remember. Is it difficult with the size lens that you have to take a photograph of the entire length of the body in the, in the room, in the morgue? In the you get that far enough. I, I can get to it, yes. So that didn't present any particular no. difficulties? Mm-hmm. Did you take any photographs of the head before scalp was pulled down? Yes. Did you take any photographs of the head after scalp had been pulled down and reflected? Did you take any photographs of the body before Y incision? Yes. Did you take any photographs after there had been a Y incision? We took the pictures of, of 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 the insides. Yes. What kinds of pictures did you take of the insides? What they told us to take. Do you have any recollection now as to what those shot oh, was? Some in in, in the interior shot up around the neck. And, and down around the adrenals. Did you take any photographs of organs after they had been removed from the body? Not that I can recall, no. Did you take any photographs showing the inside of the cranium? After the brain was uh, removed? Yes. I don't remember. I know we did it with the brain in there. seems to me we did, though. Uh, know, it's, it's vague. Did you see metal or any other kind of probes being used during the autopsy? Yes. Did you take any photographs with probes in the body? Not that I can recall. Were any probes put inside the cranium? Did I don't think, think so. I think it was uh, primarily in the neck area. Was was the probe put into the neck or did it come out of the neck? It's put into the back. The back of the body and then
2: did the probe come out the neck? So when you're referring to the neck, you're referring from behind. From behind. Yeah, right. Did you take any photographs with president lying on his
1: of the president lying on his back? Yes. Did you take any photographs with the president lying on his stomach? I think so. Did you take any photographs with the president yes. in seated position? Yes, from the back. Would uh, his body then have been roughly at a, a ninety-degree angle? So with his well, no, a little bit less than ninety, yes. But, but it was held up. Basically, the, his trunk would have been vertical yes. with his legs still right. straight. Do you remember what? Uh, what you were photographing when the president was in a seated position on some things on the back some openings sort of on on the on the back of his in the back of his head or the back of his body as well well from the neck down neck down yeah. below the neck did you yourself take any roll film out and expose it during the course of the autopsy or, you know, or for any film taken? No. Night? We did not a use usual film. The only one was in that the camera that Revy had that
2: was exposed by someone from the Secret Service.
1: The one, the camera that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, the 120.
2: That's the only roll film that was in there.
1: Could you turn again to exhibit number 19, page 10? Could you look at the bottom? Uh paragraph on page 10 please Mm -hmm. read that through as you're sitting here today and you see a reference to a small camera would that prompt in your mind a 35 millimeter or a medium format a
2: a medium format because we didn't have a 35 Mr. Stringer we have an audio recording uh, that has been told to us is
1: an audio recording of a telephone call between you and Mr. Lifton. That was mentioned earlier. That was it's been told to us was uh, recorded about 1972. We would like to play some excerpts of it for you. See if it helps refresh your recollection. Whether you can identify. Whether you can uh, verify that the conversation uh, took place or or not. Uh, What I'd like to do is to give you a copy of the transcript that we have made from this recording and you should listen the transcript should be to help you find it and you can verify whether the the transcript seems uh, accurate to you as as we play part of the take. Uh, After we play it through once uh, you're welcome to have us play it through again. Uh, Some of the portions of this are going to be of of greater interest to us than others. And let me just say for you that in some portions of the tape, Mr. Lifton states his opinion about issues, and we're not interested in Mr. Lifton's opinion. We're interested about the questions that he asked you and the substance of your answers. So if Mr. Lifton says that somebody said something or somebody didn't, uh, we're not asking you to verify whether that's true or not, and, and some, just assume that you're not paying attention to do that. This is down at the bottom of the page, excerpt number two.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 81 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.